Good morning, church. The scripture reading this morning is from Revelation chapter 16, verses 10 through the end of the chapter. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on that great day of Almighty God. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about a hundred pounds, fell on people. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hell, because the plagues were so terrible. So there has been uh, something of a cottage industry, it seems, this year in uh, folks writing different things to reflect on the challenges of the season and the effect it's having on them. And some of that, that's them reflecting personally their particular struggles with different sin in this season. For others, they're trying to get us to think more broadly about broader issues. And it's, some have been quite helpful. I remember reading one here in the last few weeks that was talking about, it was a, a, a pastor of a church that was talking about, you know, not just dealing with information overload, which I think we've all been dealing with information overload this season on whatever issue we've been encountering or, or having to wrestle with. But he's, he talked about he's also struggled with decision overload and opinion overload. He's just tired of hearing everybody's opinions because everybody's got one about everything. They got multiple ones. But it's that sense of just being overwhelmed by all of this decision and information and opinion. And I think maybe he's relating a little bit to another guy who was talking about his struggle with um, uh, anger and just really was reflecting on how much the quarantine has really brought out his anger and uh, dealing with that sin in his life. Another, uh, one theologian, I've read her before, but she writes a lot about the seven deadly sins. She write, wrote this interesting analysis of how the seven deadly sins will reveal themselves here in the midst of an election season. And some of them are kind of obvious. You think about pride, and greed, and envy. We could probably make those kind of connections pretty quickly. Some of them were a little more obscure. I thought one of the most interesting she talked about was the, the sin of gluttony. How would gluttony reveal itself in the election season? Well, 
uh, gluttony isn't just about food. And she said, her, her argument was, if we really were taking this seriously, we could all make our decision about whether or not we're going to vote and who we're going to vote for. If we just took one day late in October and spent it in prayer and research, we could all make up our minds and be done with it. Um, but we're not. <laughs> we're kind of consumed with it. Many of us are struggling not to be consumed by it. And, and she said that is a temptation for the sin of gluttony, that we can kind of become gluttonous in consuming all of the bad news that inundates our feeds every day. And, and, and you know, there's a lot of other things you could talk about in the season, but I guess what it, what it made me think about is how much Augustine used to talk about the, the nature of sin is that it disorders things, that the, the effect of sin it has on our lives is that it just, things are just out of whack. They just don't work right. And, it, and it's at a personal level in my own personal life and my things, my decisions become disordered because of sin. But the culture is broken. There's all the sin and all of its effects kind of weaves its way through our world. Sin is a disordering thing. And in seasons of high stress and high conflict, that's, that disorder becomes pronounced. Um, you know, really, a lot of t- ways, it's felt like this year, like the world is just falling apart. And, and the question that we should ask is, how do we live well when the world seems to be falling apart? And I think if there's anything I want you to see about Revelation 16, there's a lot you could get drilled down on. There's a lot of stuff going on in Revelation 16. But I want you to see that that's the exact question that they're wrestling with. Even as he tells the story of a world that's falling apart, he wants them to wrestle with, John wants his readers to see how they can live well in the midst of that season. If you don't have your Bibles open yet, I'd encourage you to open them to Revelation 16. We'll, again, as, as Wes read, we're starting in verse 10. We're, we're talking about these seven bowls of the wrath of God. These bowls, really, it seems like they're filled with the, the blood of the martyrs, and he's pouring these bowls out on the land. And... Uh, that there's seven of them. We talked last week. There's kind of a sense of new creation. That's been a big theme throughout Revelation. The seven days of creation keep coming through. If you wanted to get really detailed, you could look at each of these sevens that we've had and the seals and the trumpets and now the bowls, and you could talk about them very explicitly about how they echo the days of creation in different ways. Um, but they've also had a pattern that this kind of four plus three seems to be a pattern that we've seen. And so the 5th, 6th, and 7th seem to be grouped together. Um, so you've got this picture here. You've got these, uh, the 5th the angel. What does he do? He pours out his bowl at the 5th bowl. He pours it out on the throne of the beast. And so this is the first place. It's the only place in the book, Revelation, where the, the throne of the Antichrist is mentioned. This is his throne. So it's pouring out this judgment that's now coming on this beast's throne. It's a a link actually to the, to the fifth trumpet. In the fifth trumpet, there was this kingdom from the abyss that rises when the trumpet's blown. Here, it seems to be linked to Caesar, the throne of the beast. The, which beast are we talking about? If you can go back a couple chapters, there's a land beast and there's a sea beast. Well, I think it'll become explicit in the sixth angel that they're talking, the beast they're talking about here is the, is the sea beast. The land beast, its main job is to worship the, the sea beast, well, the land beast, look back in what, chapter 15, you, 14, you, you're going to see that the, sea, that the land beast is pointing to, he's like the Holy Spirit in this false trinity. He's pointing all of his attention to the sea beast, which acts a lot like the sun. 
the Father, Son, and Spirit are echoed in this, uh, in this throne this, and these two beasts here. So this beast is a, a picture, really, of Caesar. And I've kind of tried to reference that throughout the, the book, that if you start making sense of these images, sea versus land, you're t- thinking about Rome or Gentile versus Jew. This is a picture of Rome. It's a picture of a kind of unholy Roman Empire that's being pictured here. Um, and this this picture is Rome is now the subject of this plague that's being poured out upon them. And it's and really, regardless of, there's so few things that people all agree on in Revelation, that's one of those things that you pretty much speak pretty widely. Most people say, yeah, we're talking about Caesar here. Some people will then say that's anticipating a kind of a symbol of a future thing that's happening. But here in the first century, it was Caesar. And it's this Rome, which again, churches in Asia are surrounded by synagogues representing Jerusalem, but they're also surrounded by uh, throne, or in, uh, temples that are really giving homage to Caesar. Every day they're reminded of this empire that they live in. There are shrines of the genius of Caesar throughout Asia. And here there is this judgment that's being poured out upon them. And this judgment plunges them into darkness. But it's a darkness that's kind of weird because what happens, what do you see? You see its kingdom was plunged into darkness. So the response to the darkness is that people are gnawing their tongues in anguish. Now, what's going on there? I mean, you know, we've had the power go out a few times. I've never, like, bit my tongue as a result of the lights going out. Why are they gnawing their tongues because of this darkness? Well, a couple things to see. First off, when we see darkness, again, kind of consistent with all these things, we're hearing another echo of the plagues. This is the ninth plague on Egypt. There were three days of total darkness. What is the darkness about in Egypt? Well, the darkness in Egypt is very much taking on their primary god, which is the sun. That's the, at least the primary god that isn't the Pharaoh himself. The tenth plague is reserved for the god of Pharaoh worship. But the god of the sun is the one Egypt worships. They worship the sun as the source of life. And here, that sun is being attacked. It's now turning into darkness. But notice, too, that it's linked to the fourth um, bowl. What did we just see last week in verse 8? The fourth angel pours out his bowl on the sun, and it was scorching people with fire. So here, there was this picture of the sun intensified to that which was a source of life becomes a source of destruction. And here, the light is just being wiped out entirely. So it's related fourth and fifth are kind of linked, the fourth bowl and the fifth bowl. This intensifies the fourth trumpet. If you go all the way back to the trumpets, the, at the time there was a, a third of the land was plunged into darkness. Well, what is all this stuff going on? Well, first off, the key to darkness is it's an image of judgment. It's an image of death. That's the, if you take nothing else about all these different images, you kind of anchor yourself in that. It's a picture of judgment and death for Egypt quite clearly. This God that you depend on for life no longer works. It's not giving you what you need. Here, this darkness is actually echoing what just happened. In the fourth angel, the people of, the, of Jerusalem are being scorched with this Roman heat. So the Rome, Romans are attacking the Jews, which is what happens in the late 60s. At the same time that the Romans are attacking the Jews, here in the fifth angel, the light of Roman light is being plunged into darkness. There's this chaos that it's speaking of. And there's a couple different things you could think about. Actually, in the mid-60s, Nero set Rome on fire. 
uh, interesting little political maneuver, trying to manipulate some people, manipulate some votes, starts burning the city, it gets out of control. Something like a fourth of the city is destroyed. Massive period of chaos in Rome. But probably the most likely event of what it's speaking about is at the same time that Rome was attacking Jerusalem in the late 60s, between 66 and 70 AD, in the year 69, Nero commits suicide, which leads to what they call the year of four emperors. Right in the middle of the Jewish civil war, there is a sense where there's the end of this dynasty in Rome, in Rome, and there is absolute chaos, and it's unclear if the Roman Empire can survive. That's the kind of stuff that's happening here. There's absolute chaos that's going on. Now, then they're gnawing their tongues out. Well, what's happening here? Well, it's a picture of the kind of judgment that we're seeing throughout Revelation, which is eye for eye, called lex talionis, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. They're gnawing out the tongues through which they have committed blasphemy. That's what we described earlier. You saw that what do these people use their tongues for? They are using it to blaspheme God. Here there is this punishment, and their blasphemy becomes a kind of self-punishment. They are destroying themselves, bringing judgment on themselves for the very words that they use. And then what do they do in response to all that? As this chaos ensues, the world is falling apart, Their response, a pattern we've already seen, we're going to continue to see it throughout the rest of Revelation. Verse 11, in response to all this, they curse the God of heaven for their pain and their sores, and they do not repent of their deeds. The judgment of God reveals, gives further proof of their total depravity, their complete abandonment of God. There is no sense of opportunity for repentance because there's nothing left in their hearts that's willing to repent in the midst of the fifth bowl it reveals the hearts of the people here i think here in rome is what it's talking about there go to the sixth bowl verse 12 the sixth angel pours out his bowl in the great river euphrates and the water is dried up now that's something that we read about a lot in scripture you can actually isaiah talks about it i think like six or seven times And when Isaiah talks about the Euphrates drying up, Euphrates is the great river, it's the great river in the east, the eastern boundary of the Roman Empire. Um, It's this, it was one of the rivers that comes out of Eden, but when the river dries up, it is all about the remnant of God's people escaping. It's a picture of escape. And so there's a a little bit of that here, that this... um, that, that, that there's a, a sense now that the Euphrates is drying up. It's a fulfillment of what Isaiah was talking about, that, that some are going to be preserved. But there's more going on here, because now it's not that they dry up so that the remnant can escape. What he spells out is the reason why it's drying up is to, to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Now something else is going on. So the drying up of the Euphrates is both a new exodus, the escape of the remnant, but it's also really an act of new creation. When the rivers dry up in Scripture, it's not simply, I mean, when the Euphrates dry up, it's about the the exile escaping, but there's also rivers dry up because God's separating the land and the sea. God's getting ready to create something here. Um, It happens in creation. It happens again in the flood. As the waters recede and the land emerges, God's getting ready to create something new. But here, this is a creation by bringing in this army. Now, there's a big debate. Again, everything in Revelation is debated, but the debate about the kings of the east are talking about good guys or bad guys. 
Some see this as um, good guys. It's another picture of this army joining in with these armies that are getting ready to gather, that the beasts are gathering for war. I think the better view is that when they hear kings from the east, that's actually some of the good guys that are coming. And the kings from the east would be an ominous thing for a Roman. When they're hearing kings from the east, they would be thinking about the Parthians, which were one of their big enemies on the east. So if the river's drying up, that's their boundary that protects them. Now the bad guys, are, for them, the bad guys are coming. For us, those are our good guys. So it's a picture of, these, um, of, of this holy army that we've actually been reading about in last chapter. This holy army is now coming, prepared to enter the battlefield. So now the sides are starting to come out here. The, the good guys have shown up. The kings from the east are getting ready to come. But then there's more. Verse 13, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. What in the world is going on with these frog spirits that are coming out of their mouths? Well, first off, just notice it's pretty clear here. Now we're talking about that false trinity. You've got dragon, you've got beast, and you've got false prophet. Now what's going on with this false prophet? Because it's the first time we've heard about this. Well, again... We have initially we had dragon, we had sea beast, we had land beast. The land beast, what was the land beast doing? It was a ministry of prophecy. The work of the land beast was to tell people to worship the sea beast. From this point on, the earth beast is generally going to be referred to as the false prophet. Because these three enemies have come together, their roles are established, this false trinity has risen up. And it is getting ready to do this evil on the land. They're coming together, and then what comes out of their mouths are these frog spirits. What in the world is going on there? Well, again, a couple things. First off, Egyptian plagues. Second plague was the plague of frogs. What's the big deal about frogs? Well, one, frogs are a picture of pestilence. It's a picture of disease, destruction. Um, They anticipate nasty things to come. Frogs are not really pretty animals. But one thing that's about frogs, I think it's kind of compelling. Uh, When do you hear frogs? You hear the frogs at night. Remember, I I was a kid. My grandfather would actually take me gigging, go frog hunting. We'd go go find these frogs and bring out this pole and kind of hear them. You kind of knew where they were and sneak up behind them and whack them on the head and go have frog legs the next day. Kind of weird, I know, but we were doing this thing. So, but you could find the frogs. You knew the frogs because they were always noisy at night. The frogs are messengers announcing darkness. So the frogs coming out of their mouth, these frog spirits are speaking of a darkness to come. And and notice verse 14. These frog spirits are demonic spirits. They perform signs. They go abroad to the kings of the whole world, not the kings of the east, the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle. They are preaching a language of darkness and evil, this false trinity is gathering the earthly kings for this great battle to come. And when they call it the great battle, what do they say? It's the great day of God the Almighty, which is in a reference to Revelation 6, verse 17. It's the culmination of the plan of God. Something significant is getting ready to come. It's the big thing, the big moment. I'm going to come to 15 later. We're going to talk about it. But verse 16 tells you what that big moment is. And they assemble them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon, one of the most talked about phrases in Revelation. What in the world is Armageddon? 
you know it's symbolic language because the word literally would be translated Harmageddon, and it literally means the mountain of Megiddo, which is a problem because Megiddo's not a mountain. Megiddo's a plain. There's a picture of it right there on your screen. Mount Carmel's way off in the distance, but you really have to be kind of stretching things to imagine that that's part of Megiddo. That's the plain. So what is a plain doing being a mountain? It's not immediately obvious why Armageddon is the place where everyone is assembling, but he's bringing them all together and assembling them in this place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Notice he spells out, he points them to Hebrew, and that may be your hint as to try to understand this, because if you think Hebrew, now we're back in the Old Testament. So Megiddo shows up several times in the Old Testament. There are a number of battles that are fought there. There's a number of things, and some people try to link different ones. I think the most compelling one is 2 Kings chapter 23 and 2 Chronicles chapter 35, that that is the death of King Josiah. King Josiah was one of the good kings, one of the last good kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. Josiah had rediscovered the world word. He'd rediscovered the likely think that it was the book of Deuteronomy. He'd rediscovered it, was reading it among the people. He was an agent of the word of God. He was a true king, speaking the word, seeking to follow God. And he was fighting, of all things, he was fighting Egypt. And when he fought Egypt here at the plain of Megiddo, he died. And when he died, it ended the hope for renewal of Judah. And within pretty short time, like the next chapter, um, exile came. This is the last, was the last stand of the righteous before the exile. Well, what is happening in Armageddon here in Revelation is a kind of reversal of that. Because here at the plain of, Ar- at the plain of Megiddo, here in the battle of Armageddon, the true king, the king of kings, is going to be leading his holy army against a nation that has already been described as Egypt. He's going to stand against them, and he's going to win. He's going to actually return the people from exile and bring them back and establish a new land, a new creation, a new empire. He's reversing all that we saw in the death of King Josiah. I think that's a little bit the story in reverse. The kings from the east are reversing the exile. The good king of Judah is coming to fight and will win and the frog army, Egypt, is going to be overthrown. Something's getting ready to happen. But all of these actors are now being assembled. And what's interesting, what will disappoint you if you're kind of building up, kind of feels like we're getting built up to this big, giant climax, like it's going to have like a Battle of Helms Deep, like 30-minute fight on screen. It's going to totally disappoint you because they're going to assemble all of this, and then like Jesus is going to open his mouth, and the battle's done. Like, there's just nothing, because they have nothing to offer. The kings of the world, all of the strength, all of their blasphemy, they can assemble all they want, but what we're going to see in the next couple chapters, they've got nothing to stand against the king of kings. When Jesus decides it's done, then it's done. But that's, they're now assembled at the sixth bowl, and then the seventh bowl, the victory is already declared. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it's done, or it is finished. And that should probably be an echo to a lot of us. We're hearing Jesus' words from the cross answered here. As As they are assembled for war, the victory is immediately declared. It is finished. 
the finish is going to be following in the chapters ahead. 17, 18, 19, we're going to see what just happened right here as it gets played out for us. But we're told up front, we already won. And so we're going to see that battle knowing the end. It's finished. And it's finished with simplicity. All that God has to do, Jesus here, all he has to do is speak a word and the battle is over. Like he opens his mouth and they all fall over. It is finished. But now there is this cosmic storm that comes as a result of this declaration of victory. There's flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and this earthquake. It's like it's never been seen on earth. So great it was. The city is being ripped into pieces. It is ripping apart the great city, which is Jerusalem. It's one of those key things in understanding the text. Most will probably tell you Rome. But this is Jerusalem parading as a Rome. This is a Jerusalem that's already been said. This is the city where, um, where, where Christ was crucified. It's the most explicit reference in Revelation that this is Jerusalem we're talking about. Babylon is Jerusalem. Jerusalem has betrayed its identity as being the, the ones who are anticipating and to preach and proclaim Messiah. And now there is this destruction, having turned their back on God and his ways, there is destruction that is coming upon Jerusalem here. It is a cosmic storm, these, this earthquake like it's never been seen before. It is an echo of Sinai, Mount Sinai, when God appears to give the Ten Commandments to the people. There's earthquakes and there's thunder. It's all this sense of the presence of God is there. It's the last of, I think, four different times that we've seen kind of a Sinai reference in Revelation. But Jerusalem is torn apart, and again, historically, what's going on in the late 60s, in the midst of that Jewish war, Uh, It's not simply Jew versus Rome. It was Jew versus Rome and also Jew versus Jew. The city was torn apart by factions. There were over a million Jews killed in between AD 66 and AD 70, and most of those were from Jew on Jew violence. It was from internal strife, and these factions as this nation was ripping itself apart while they were trying to unite to stand against this enemy that would ultimately rip them apart, that would destroy the temple and destroy the city. Um, but this is, a, a, this is describing in apocalyptic terms a destruction that is wreaking havoc on this place during this time. It's not only the earthquake, but it's also the hailstones, that the great hailstones, about 100 pounds each. Think about that. I think the largest hail that I, I found on record is something like four pounds which itself is crazy. I just had to have my roof inspected because there were little tiny bits of hail and saw the little damage that could do. Imagine a four-pound chunk of hail being thrown at your roof and then take a hundred-pound, this big old boulder. But when you have this picture of God sending hail, that's a picture of judgment that God is stoning. I think that's the most natural image that we're really called to think about when you see pictures of hail in Scripture. That's God stoning. He's stoning a people, which is to bring judgment upon them. And it's not just the hundred pounds, which is big enough, but that's a translation. In the original, it's not described as pounds, it's described as a talent. A talent of all things, of many things, but one thing it is, is a measurement that was used in the temple and the tabernacle. So the talents are, are, are breaking apart. The temple is breaking apart. The tabernacle is breaking apart. There is a judgment, a cosmic judgment that is raining down upon these people because they have rejected Jesus. And what do they do? 
We've already seen it. We see it again. The great hailstones are falling from heaven. And verse 21, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. And again, God's judgment simply confirms the heart of people. God's judgment is just. It's not that people are saying, I really wish I could say I'm sorry now. God, I can't believe you're doing this to me. It's they see this judgment poured upon them and they hate him all the more. The response is to curse God. So what do you do with that? Well, I think Scripture tells us what we do with that. Because in the midst of all that, you have verse 15. And what does verse 15 say? Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. It's an echo of uh, what Jesus would say himself in the Gospels. He says, I'm going to come like a thief in the night. And you'll see it, most of your text will probably have this highlighted. If you have a red letter edition, it'll be in red here. This is Jesus saying it again. I told you, I'm going to come like a thief. I'm coming. So what do you need to do? You need to be ready. You need constant vigilance. You need to be God's people in the midst of hardships. This is the third of seven beatitudes you'll see in the book of Revelation, seven blessings that God says, here are the people who are blessed. And as the world's collapsing, as the world's falling apart, here are the people who are blessed. And blessed here are those who remain ready. It's echoed, actually, if you go all the way back to the seven churches. It's the uh, church of Sardis and the church of Laodicea. It says similar kind of thing. Stay ready. Be ready. God will bless the ones who stay awake. So what is he saying here? It's like, and it's, it's odd image, I know. It's, it's, you're, you're, you're keeping your garments not. You're not throwing on your pajamas and curling up with a blanket and saying, I'm ready to go to battle. They're keeping their, they're keeping their the clothes on as they're ready for the war that is to come. They're staying up. They've got a, a watchman by the campfire. They're ready to go at any moment. They're ready for the battle. They are staying ready, knowing time can come at any point. God blesses those who stay awake. So what, he, what does he call them to? He calls them to be a people who are tending to God's house, even when the world is falling apart. Both Rome and Jerusalem here are collapsing. This is really, most folks will tell you that what Revelation 16 is about is about the end that is to come. What I'm trying to argue is within the context of the first century, it was about an end that actually happened. That this is about the end of an age here in Revelation 16. And Rome and Jerusalem, kind of the centers of the world at the time for at least uh, Jewish Christians, they're, they're falling apart. But the church can thrive. And in fact, the church will thrive through this season. The church thrives while Rome and Jerusalem are, ca- are collapsing because those within the church, some are staying ready. That remnant is rising above. In the midst of the big crisis, they are focusing on their faith, on who they are as God's people, and thus they can tend to the strength and the health of the church even while the world is collapsing around them. And I think that's the question for us. How do we live well? Well, we tend to God's house, even when the world is falling apart. We tend to God's house. And I think we're in a season where it's hard. Right now, I'm, I'm really, I've kind of, a lot of things I've kind of tabled in my mind for the sex, next six months. We're, we're not gathered as God's people. We're, there's a lot of us that are still not here, but we don't wait until the pandemic is ending and we can feel like we can gather fully again to be God's people. 
We don't wait till the church is gathered to, to, to be the church. For some, what that means is that maybe this week you're picking up a church directory and calling someone you haven't talked to in a while. Maybe you're showing up on somebody's door and you're knocking on the door and stay 10 feet apart, stay outside. Maybe you're going for a walk with a Christian brother or sister. You're encouraging, building up, sharpening, iron sharpening iron as we build one another up, as we be the people of God, even if the world is collapsing. We open our Bible and we close our browser because we remind ourselves that we are the people of God, hearing the word of God, seeking to be transformed by the word of God, and living as God's people. We live ready and we tend to God's house. We tend to God's people. Let's pray. God, I ask your blessing on our church as we go through this season. Help us to be your people, to be passionate about listening to you, to your voice, to be, give us eyes to see and hearts that ache for one another, to reach out to those that we aren't seeing or haven't seen in a while or haven't talked to in a while, to creatively find ways to engage one another as we navigate this season together. God, I pray that you will strengthen our church through this season as you strengthened churches in Asia in the midst of the collapse of Rome and the collapse of Jerusalem. God, you can build your church in any season. You have done so. I ask you to do so again. In Christ's name, amen.